Hey, you're listening to the Abide Podcast. To find out more about Abide, go to AbideChurchFL.com and enjoy today's message. I want to just first say thank you so much to Gio for trusting me with this opportunity. Uh, it takes a certain amount of trust to hand the mic off. And um, it's one of the things I admire about you most, both of you, you know, and everybody here to to a great extent, is so open and, like Gio was saying, vulnerable, and um, has really welcomed us, and I really appreciate that. Uh, we are in this Making Space series, and today I want to talk about a really fun, weird, crazy story in the Bible that I, I, I hope and I think, and for me, it really brought out one of the principal lessons of just making space for God to feed you fundamentally. Um, but before I do that, um, I want to say that uh, in addition to that, we'll be talking about the atonement. Where's John? John Valentine. That was for you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're not talking about the atonement today. Yeah. That was a, that's for John only. That was an inside joke. So Maybe inside jokes aren't the best for everybody, but I had to do that. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. Um, before I get started, I want to just invite you to participate in an exercise that really allows us to practice hearing the voice of God. And so I need two volunteers, and I would ask um, you at the end next to Kylie, would you mind coming up just for a second? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just for a second. It's going to be quick and, and painless. <laughs> and sir, in the back, would you mind coming up and help me out just for one second? Yes, sir. Thank you. Remind everybody of your name? David. David. Kristen. Kristen. Okay. All right. So we know that, that hearing the voice of God should be Christianity 101. And we know that the, the main purposes of prophecy is to edify, encourage, and what was the other one? Exhort. Yes. <laughs> Exhort. So that is what we're going to be doing just here quickly giving everyone an opportunity to hear for God for these two amazing people up here. All right? So what I want you to do, this is a time for encouragement. We're not going to be doing words of correction, okay? No words of correction, nothing discouraging. Save that for Twitter. People are so mean on Twitter. People are so mean on Twitter. Don't put it on Twitter either. That's not good. Uh, So we're going to just take a couple seconds to listen for one word from the Lord. And when you have that one word, I want you to raise your hand. And I'll call on you, and you tell us who it's for in that one word. Does that sound like a plan? Okay. Father, I just ask you to speak to our hearts. Give us the ability to hear you, to experience you right now. Speak one word for Kristen or David on our hearts right now. And as soon as you have that word, just raise your hand, and we'll get going. Strong for Kristen, yeah. Here. Whirling free. Willing. Curious. Seeking. Yeah. Peace. Yes. David. Perseverance. Yeah. Hard working. David. Joy of Kristen. Yeah. Yep. 
Patience. Anybody else? What was it? Love fearlessly. That's two words. Is that okay? Okay. Redeemed for David. Gloria. Holy for Kristen. Anointed Kristen. Is one over here? John. Oh. Follow. Which one? Both of them. Enough, you are enough. Ooh, good word. Covington. Beloved, David. Amen. That resonate? Yeah. That resonate with you? Thank you. Thank you, everybody. As we, as we go through this, I, I want you just to remember the words that God spoke over these two up here through all of you. There were no words of condemnation, right? There were no words of, you're getting it wrong. You need to do better. They were building up. They were solidifying who we are, who they are, fundamentally. I want you to raise your hand if, if uh, you weren't sure if God spoke a word to you, but when somebody else said it, that was what you had to. Yep. Yep. God is speaking these things to us about who we are fundamentally. We are loved and we're cherished. And he's looking to increase his presence inside of us. And he's looking to mature us and grow us and to free us into everything that he's created us to be. And one of those things, one of the, one of the principles and one of, of, the, of the lessons that that I feel like is, are so important is, is what we are taking in to ourselves, what we are being fed by. Are we being fed on life, like what we heard? Or are we being fed on something else, which always leads to places we don't want to be? And, and so I want to take a look at this passage in Genesis, all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 2.9. Oh, left there. Quick, thanks. Uh, let me bring that up here real quick. I don't want to turn around and read it. Okay. And in that garden, the Lord God caused to grow from the ground every tree that is desirable and pleasing to sight and good, suitable, pleasant for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the experiential knowledge, recognition of the difference between good and evil. And I'm going to go off script a little bit and read Genesis 3, this, uh, this crazy story here. That's got talking snakes and trees, and it sounds like a, it sounds like a fiction story, a good one. Um, so here we go. 
Now the serpent was more crafty, subtle, skilled, and deceit than any living creature in the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent, Satan, said to the woman, Can it really be that God has said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, except the fruit from the tree which is in the middle of the garden. God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or else you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die, for God knows that on that day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, that is, you will have greater awareness, and you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delightful to look at, and a tree to be desired in order to make one wise and insightful, she took from its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate all right. So we're going to talk a little bit about these two trees. So why is this, why is this important? There's two trees in this garden, and the, both of these trees are suitable for food. One has a commandment, yes, you may eat of that. The other has the, the commandment, do not eat from it, or you will surely die. Why is it important to focus on what we're feeding ourselves with is the question. I always like to start with that question. Like, why are we even talking about this? And I believe one of the critical, essential reasons for that is that we begin to look like, on the outside, what we take in to ourselves. Our hearts will pour out of us, and we begin to take on the appearance of the things that we feed ourselves with. Luke 6.45, Jesus says, good treasure comes from a good heart. It matters what we feed ourselves with. It matters what we are building on, the foundation that we stand on, the nourishment that we take in. If it's good then the treasure and the fullness of life will not only transform us on the inside, but will come out and we'll be able to make kingdom impact, dynamic king, kingdom impact on the outside. If what we take in it has its roots in destruction and striving and, and selfish ambition, all those things that, that lie on the outside of what God wants for us, then we will begin to take on that appearance as well. And I don't need to go into all that to, for us to understand the pathway here, you know, the path that we follow through both, both routes. So let's talk a little bit about this, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, this, this tree, this, this knowledge of good and evil, it has a Hebrewic connotation of having the right to decide good and evil. What else do we call this? Choice. Judgment. Right? When we feel like we have the right to decide between good and evil, what's good and what's bad, we are giving ourselves the right to judge. So we are taking that responsibility on ourselves. So you have to imagine this. In this, in this story that God is relating to his people, that he has the tree of life, and then he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or in other words, the tree of judgment, in there as well, and said, do not eat from this. Now, for me, that seems kind of small, because I, I walk around probably for the majority of my life, and I think there's so many other, there's so many other things that are, more, that are worse than judging. Like, why did he put a tree of judgments in the garden? Like, what is that about? Shouldn't it be uh, the tree of lust, you know, or the tree of, of murder? You know, something that would, that would grab somebody else's our attention and say, no, if you eat from this, if you take this thing on the inside, then it's going, you're going to die. But no, it's none of those 
this tree, this judgment is elevated far above the others. And he says, do not eat from this or you will die. And I have to ask the question, why? Why is judgment such a big deal? And I think the reason why this judgment is the prohibition is because it's antithetical to love. Or in other words, judgment and love cannot coexist. You cannot love and judge somebody at the same time. Greg Boyd says it this way, love ascribes worth at cost to myself. Judgment ascribes worth to myself at the cost of others. I'll say that again. Love ascribes worth at cost to myself, while judgment ascribes worth to myself at the cost of others. I hope that, or I, I think that most of you would agree that the command, the, the uh, admonishment or the, the encouragement to love is at the top of the list of kingdom living. The very top of kingdom living is to love. And if we're mixed up in something that cannot allow the space for love to exist, and we've got a problem. <laughs> it's something needs to change. In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, Love one another. By this they will know that what? You're my disciples. That's pretty big. It's nothing else in that passage. It says, Love one another. By that they will know that you are my disciples. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Love above all else. 1 Corinthians 13, the, the chapter that gets read at weddings. Without love, nothing else matters. Nothing. Nothing else matters. 1 Corinthians 2 has the same message. Without love, there can be nothing good. Love is the, is the key. Love is the key. But the problem is that we have trouble feeding from life. So we steal the worth from others to feed ourselves by default. The reason is because we need to feed. There is, there is something inside of us that is driving to feed on something. We need that. We need nourishment. We are built to feed. We need the food in order to help us to grow. And when we, when we don't feed from life, when we don't feed from life, we'll feed on whatever else looks good to us. And in most cases, that becomes others. We feed on their worth to increase our own. This has become normal for so many of us, myself included. I'm no exception to this. We operate so often on autopilot, where we're just walking down the street, or we're walking through our house, so we're out mixed up in, in public, and we're thinking we have this autopilot dialogue going through, our, going through our heads. Whatever it is for you, Whatever it happens to be for you. Oh, they're, they're more out of shape than I am. Oh, they're poorer than I am. I'm better looking. Let's bring some culturally relevant stuff into this. What about that homosexual or the transgender or the pro-lifer? Pro-choice is one that would get most of us fired up. 
Look at that Republican or that Democrat. Look at that Trump supporter. The liberals. All of these things, whatever that autopilot in your head happens to be, it thrives and feeds and grows on the message that you're bad, so I'm good. I get to be good because you're bad. When we do this, it, it, it almost seems unnecessary to say, but, but the wounds that we hand out when we live from this, when we're feeding on this tree, are, are deep. When we're judging others, we set them up to be inferior. And when they become inferior, they become easy to wound. And like I said, a lot of times we do this on autopilot. When we eat from this tree, it leads to destruction. James 1.15 shows us a pretty, pretty clear path. First comes the, the temptation, then the sin, then death. Psalms 51, David conceived, sin was conceived, and it birthed iniquity. Right, we know the path, we know the destruction when we take this stuff in. When we take this in in our core. Now, I do want to point out that, that judgment is not the same as discernment. Okay? In the Greek, discernment means critic. And, and what we are discerning is, is it safe or unsafe? Now, can I trust in this situation or can't I? Should I go here or shouldn't I? Should I invite this person in or shouldn't I? Discernment doesn't get to touch the worth and value of somebody. But judgment does. And this doesn't, and, and, and I, want, I want you to, to hear me on this. When you are invited to share with somebody about their lives, that is the permission granted to bring some things up. But even in that context, there, I think that, that I operated for a, long, for a long time, and I think that it can become kind of common that when we are in an intimate relationship with somebody, we, we just forget the rules. <laughs> you know, anything goes. We can bring up anything, no matter how it sounds, no matter what it looks like. And it's okay, because they know that we love them. Well, that's a pretty easy path to slide into just judging somebody that you care about the most. And it wounds, and it hurts. But how do we get here? How do we get to this place to where we've discovered that, when, that we operate on this destructive autopilot, these messages that run through our heads? How did we get to this place? And I think that a, a lot of negative behavior patterns have their roots in a, a faulty picture of the Father, a perverted image of the Father. And you see it in this story. Did God really say? The serpent, did God really say? Oh, no, you won't die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. That is an attack on the character of the Father. And if he, if he can, if the enemy can attack the character of the Father, the character and nature of love itself, then he can get us to, to turn our backs on it, to not embrace it, to not trust it. Suddenly, that becomes untrustworthy. 
Our love or image of God, I'm sorry, our love for God will never be greater than our image of Him. Our love for God will never be greater than our perception of Him. To the extent we love God is the same extent to which we believe that He is altogether good and lovely. And in order to be fed by Him, we must believe that He is good and beautiful. If we believe that He is untrustworthy, if we believe that He is waiting to condemn us, if we believe that He is waiting to tear us down, why in the world would we ever go and sit in front of Him? We may go through the motions and sit down, but why would we want to invite that relationship in? We won't eat something. We won't feed on something that disgusts us. We know that with our kids, right? We put something in front of their, their faces, and they're like, no, I'm not eating that. What are you talking about? That's gross. They won't eat it. Or if they do eat it, they make all these gagging sounds, and it's like, oh, this is gross. I don't, wanna, don't, don't, I don't even want to go through this. That went over their nose. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's the unwritten rule. You've got to call out your kids at least once when you're up here speaking. So do we believe that he is good? That's a question that we have to ask and answer for each one of us. Do we actually believe that he is altogether good and lovely? Is that in the core of our being? Is that a foundation principle? Is that a foundational truth to us? Is he good and beautiful and holy? Is he, does he have your best interests at heart? So that, and that brings us to the tree of life. You know, and and I, wanna, I just want to point out Martin Luther here. Martin Luther, the father of Reformation, a, a huge, a key figure in the development of our faith and, and what, we, what we understand Christianity to be. Martin Luther, the, the, the father of the Reformation, he loves Jesus. He loved Jesus and was terrified of the father. A key central figure of, our, of, of, the, of the path, of the development of Christianity, and, and had so many great things, so many great contributions loved Jesus, and was terrified of the Father. And many of us are also. Many of us are also in love with Jesus and terrified of the Father. Jesus is love, grace, and forgiveness, and God is wrath, vengeful, punishing, and condemning. But on the same side, we, we all know and accept that Jesus is God. So we end up believing in this kind of split personality deity. <laughs> how do you, what do you do with that? How do you get, how do you get close to that? We, we unknowingly many, many times come to believe that Jesus only reveals a part of the Father. That he only reveals a portion And for many of us, that's not a, that's not a place that we would, we would want to ad- admit that we arrive at. But for, for most of us, it's the, only, it's the only option. What do we do with this? What do we do with what we feel? What do we do with what we believe about the Father? So how, and how can we trust and be intimate with a God we think can embrace us one moment and destroy us the next? It's so difficult. 
And, and I, I think that we can make strides in that. That's what we want to be doing, and we want to be maturing, and we want to, and we want to be growing in intimacy and coming into that place with the Father where he feeds into us. But for, for most of us, there's this nagging, lingering thing, this, this hesitation, and it comes from this. How do we be close to you? How do we get close to you? How do we sit and soak in your love and believe that you are altogether lovely and beautiful? How do we feed on you from that perspective? How do we feed on you with that perception? But there's an answer for this. Thank goodness. (laughs) And the answer and the solution is to understand that nowhere in all of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, nowhere is there any support for the theology or doctrine that Jesus only reveals a portion of the Father. No, quite the opposite. In fact, an underlying current, strong current of the New Testament narrative is that Jesus fully reveals the character and nature of the Father. He is the key to unlocking the beauty of God. He is the cipher to the code. We have often, and again, myself included, for for most of my life, I found myself allowing other people's opinions and and, and teachings and my readings of, of the Old Testament scripture and my own life experience, I allowed those qualities, those things, to define Jesus instead of allowing Jesus to define those things. I had it reversed. And it's not that that is entirely wrong. It's it's not wrong if what you are allowing to define Jesus doesn't conflict with his character and nature that we see in Scripture. But when it does, something's got to give. We are, it, it is my opinion that we are not given permission to believe anything about God that doesn't line up with the character and nature and life of Jesus. So anything that you see, anything that you're believing about God that is not altogether beauty and lovely, beautiful and lovely, and for your benefits, is not in line with Jesus. The heart and the love and the ministry and the life of Jesus. And we've got to start asking questions about that. We've got to start wondering about that. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. One of my favorite passages. I, I stood up here one, uh, a couple months ago and I talked about the passage in Revelation that, that has become my favorite passage to confirm that Jesus is the only one who, is, who has ever fully revealed the character and nature of the Father. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is also a favorite one of mine. Hebrews 1.1, this is amplified. God, having spoken to the fathers long ago in the voices and writings of the prophets in many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of the truth, and in many ways has in these last days spoken to us in the person of one who is by his character and nature, his son, namely Jesus, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, through whom also he created the universe, 
That is the universe as a space-time matter continuum. I want to point out in verse, in verse 1, the writer of Hebrews is saying, God in the past has spoken to us about himself through the ancestors and the prophets, and they revealed a portion. Remember I said many of us, many of us grow up in, in grow up believing that, that Jesus reveals a portion of God. That, that writers of Hebrews is saying the, the prophets and the ancestors only revealed a portion of Jesus. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through the person of his son. In that passage, the writer of Hebrews has elevated Jesus above all others. And you have to understand the, the magnitude of that statement. The prophets and the writings and the ancestors were held in the highest regard by the people. And they were the ultimate authority on, on the scripture. And the writer of Hebrews just elevated Jesus above all of them. And he said, if you're not elevating Jesus, if you're not understanding the Father through Jesus, then, then you're getting some of it wrong. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance and only expression of the glory of our awesome God. Reflecting God's Shekinah glory, the light being the brilliant light of the divine. And the exact representation and perfect imprint of his Father's essence. The beginning of that verse, the Son is the radiance, or in the Greek, it's the hypostasis. And that, that word means the essence. What the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that the Son is the essence of the Father, the very essence of him. The essence of something cannot contradict what it's the essence of. It has to be the expression of that which, what, which it is expressing. In other words, when God shines, it looks like Jesus. And this is how we begin to feed ourselves from life rather than the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. When we dare to believe that Jesus is as beautiful or that God is as beautiful as Jesus reveals him to be. When we dare to believe that the Father is as beautiful and altogether lovely as Jesus reveals him to be. Then we come to him and we sit and we feed on the love that he has for us. And we make space for him in our lives because we trust that every time that we commune with him or abide in him, that we will be filled. That we will come away more complete than what we were before we went in. That he is there to be the perfect father for us. And, and then when we, see, we sing, you're a good, good father, we begin to understand the magnitude of those words. It's not what we thought it to be. It's not what, we, it's not what it looked like before. He really is that good. He really is as good as Jesus reveals him to be. Like I said, I've used the word autopilot a couple of times. And when we're, it's, it's kind of like when I, when I was kind of thinking or reflecting on that, I kind of had the, the image of the matrix. A lot of times we're, we're walking through this, what we, what we think is reality. 
but there's something else going on that we don't even recognize. This, this kind of deception that we don't recognize unless, unless God awakens it inside of us and we begin to look at it and we begin to see. That, and and this, this, I think, is one of those opportunities that we can take from this story that we've heard so many times, the story of the two trees, and understand the, the central lesson that God is trying to teach us through it. And so I want to I wanna talk about just a couple of practical steps that we can take to begin to live this stuff out. Because it's, it's easy to say, but then you have to actually go do it. You have to go live it. And we have to have some kind of strategy to hijack our autopilot. So one of the things that you can do is you can pray for the difficult people in your life. Anybody done that? It's hard. Think about the, the five most difficult people in your life. Pray for them every day. That's one thing that you can do. Another thing that I feel is so foundational is to begin to come into the presence of the Father and just feed on Him. The more you feed on Him, the more you will begin to change from the inside out. And the easier it will be to interrupt your autopilots and begin to view the people around you with the only opinion we're allowed to have of them that they have unsurpassable worth and value. So as a response to this, I want to give us the opportunity to, to envision the number one most difficult person in your life. And then I'm going to ask you to ask the Father to reveal them to you how he sees them. So I'm going to pray, and I want us all to close our eyes and imagine the most difficult person in your life and then ask God to show you as he sees them. Father, I thank you for just interrupting our autopilots. I thank you for being able to shine a spotlight on things that we may not have seen before. I just ask you, Lord, to show us the most difficult person, the hardest person that we have in our lives. Help us to see them the way that you see them.